Hello and welcome to another episode talking about oil and gas and the energy show. I'm very pleased to say that today I've got Neil Young, the CEO and president of Elixir Energy, who's going to be talking us through um, a whole range of topics. Uh, Neil, good to see you. How are you? Merlin, I'm very, very good. Uh, not quite as good as a boy just back from Chile, but uh, no, I'm, I'm still going very well. Thanks. Good. Um, now, we last spoke six weeks ago. Um, you, you, at that time, you kind of mentioned the consolidation in the uh, on the oil and gas sector among the big boys. Um, we'll catch up on that. But of course, I think the big show in town is what's happening at COP at the moment, COP28. It's, it's such an interesting situation, you know, being held in a uh, fossil, um, fossil fuel and oil producing nation. Um, the OPEC uh, members are standing up and saying, hang on, let's not phase out fossil fuels just yet. And kind of the Western media are kind of up in arms and saying, don't they know we've got a climate crisis going on? Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts about the kind of the dynamics at COP28 and kind of what you're seeing coming out of that. Well, thanks, Merlin. It's clearly a fascinating topic uh, in, in multiple aspects that, that feeds into our industry in very immediate ways. Um, as I see it, um, the key tension that is very uh, visibly um, illustrated here is that a lot of people hope that by retarding supply, demand will naturally fall and that then carbon emissions will fall and the world will be saved. But the reality is that supply follows demand in oil and gas. And that if you retard supply, say by Western companies, then OPEC will increase its supply. So you don't change a thing. Or, or, or the other thing is that you drive prices up. Exactly. And, and at some point, and maybe this is the intention, I mean, oil and gas demand is very inelastic, but it's not infinitely inelastic. So if you, if, you, if you stop all supply, then you stop all demand. Um, but the reality is that it is very inelastic, and so then you're just really shifting supply around. And I think that this is driven partly by people's strong recollection that the tobacco industry was a supply-led industry. It induced demand, and that people fought against that, and that by retarding supply, they 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 stopped demand. So going, oh great, let's let's do that in oil and gas, and and we can be the the heroes of today. But energy is not tobacco. It's not a voluntary consumption item. It, it is demand-driven. And if policymakers want to reduce demand, they should put in place mechanisms to do so through taxes or, or, or subsidizing replacements or whatever. But by directly attacking supply doesn't really fix anything. Well, it's, it's a really, really key point. Um, and I, as you're talking, I'm kind of a couple of things are popping up. One is that the it seems as if the kind of the German... Uh, Green Party and the the politics of Germany have been strong enough to tackle supply of energy into Germany. And what we've seen there is two things. One is um, costs have risen, uh, so the cost of electricity in Germany is is, is much higher. Um, an unfortunate byproduct is that energy has become dirtier. You know, the CO two emissions have have risen a lot. But the the key thing is that energy demand has fallen. In Germany, it really has fallen. If you look at um, uh, energy consumption and industrial manufacturing, it's fallen, but it hasn't disappeared. It's just gone to China, um, so it's kind of been displaced. So what, so what they've done is a kind of economic harm to their own country and kind of environmental harm by sending um, the manufacturing off to places where the the grid is coal fired and um, much dirtier. I mean, that, that offshoring phenomena is you know. Not uncommon in the Western world, but I think what we also see there, 
are changes in, in population, uh, not in absolute numbers, but in terms of aging. And as you get, now historically, you might have had 10% of people over the age of 60, but now if you've got 20 or 30%, they, they consume less. Now, it's, it's obviously good for them, but in terms of the dynamism of the economy, it's not necessarily good, not necessarily sustainable. So I think that energy profile reflects, as you say, onshoring, but then also changes in, in the form of population age distribution. So you're effectively saying that the, the developing world has got a younger population and that's where the demand is going to be coming from. Uh, absolutely, because I mean, even if you have poor governance, you can't help but growing at 3 or 4% a year because you just copy things and you've got a big um, demographic bulge to go, to go and take advantage of. You run things half well, you can grow at 5 to 10% year or more if you're better than that. And that sort of growth is incredibly hard to satisfy with forms of energy which aren't dense and which are expensive and intermittent. And to expect people to forego demand, again, not supply, is, is not judging human nature accurately. And I think that's the human nature is very, very powerful. You know, we, we evolved through a certain you know, aspiration through species to grow and to try and retard that demand is antithetical to to you know, the origin of species almost. So we're we're at the last day now of COP twenty eight. Um, when this broadcast goes out, we'll probably um, we'll probably have had the conclusion of it. But they're debating at the moment now whether there's going to be kind of phraseology in the final speech that's the final text that's the kind of the the product of the conference about whether there will be phasing out of fossil fuels. Now, you've just succinctly described how that primary demand is so vital to kind of that human instinct. Would you advise, if you were kind of chairing the panel at COP28 now, would you be advise them not to include phasing out of fossil fuels in, in, in that text? I mean, if they do, it's a political statement, not a realistic one. I mean, I think even the IEA, who obviously represents richer countries in the world, recognizes that you're going to need fossil fuels in some shape or form for certain needs which can't be met by other other supply sources really, you know, forever, whoever long forever is. And that by by being too absolutist about it, um, you're not recognizing that you're going to need to invest a lot in CCS. Also by being absolutist about it, and I noticed this week some you know something from COP28 about uh, some Western scientists saying, well, stop eating meat and blah, 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 blah. And I just read it and thought, you're just feeding the Trumps of this world. You're just going to help them win by giving them lines. You need to be realistic, not absolutist. Um, so I, I think that, you know, to go back to your question, um, phasing things out is absolutist and acts against the interest in reducing emissions. You've got to be practical and uh, look for solutions rather than statements. So at the moment, um, we're sitting with oil prices at um, WTI at around $71 a barrel. Um, at the start of the year, uh, we were at about $75 a barrel and we've traded up to $90 a barrel. So it's, you know, the oil price has been relatively um, price bound, uh, range bound over the course of the year. And there are people talking, I, I mean, I've seen reports by Citibank talking about um, OPEC needing to maintain the supply cuts. Otherwise, you could see oil prices halving in the next, um, over the course of the next 12 months. Um, do you have a view on kind of short term uh, oil price movements? Or is that not really what um, kind of motivates your 
thought processes. I, I think in, in our game, particularly of an explorer or whatever, you've got, you've got a long-term view. And so I think oil prices are very reflective of short-term views on, for instance, demand in China or how much storage there is in, in Texas or, or whatever. Um, I don't think they're reflective of, of, of long-term supply-demand balances. And I think any sort of analysis of futures curves showed no predictive ability at all. So I, I, I think so going to the absolute price, $70 is still not a bad price. And I think that clearly there's a you know, demand issue just now with China's economy being, being fairly weak. But I think there's also a fascinating supply issue with America being incredibly strong. And that is notwithstanding some people might whinge about a federal government that they don't like or whatever. In reality, oil, oil supply in the States is driven by, by the States. And um, they're doing you know, more than 13 million barrels a day. It's the highest in the world. And that reflects the dynamism of, of the American uh, economy and the oil and gas sector specifically. I was there recently for the first time since uh, before COVID, and it's just so energizing for our sector to see how deep and enterprising it is. I mean, also, the, I mean, the OPEC cuts have been fairly effective. I think that they're being challenged now, which no doubt City is, is, is observing by you know, the smaller countries like Nigeria, whatever, chafing at the bit and wanting to go and break the rules. Um, but I can see that discipline largely being held. But, you know, the Americans clearly, you know, aren't in OPEC, and even if they were, they couldn't control their, their you know, the Texans and, and a thousand different companies. Um, and uh, then the Chinese economy will do what it what it does. And I think it's uh, clear that you know, the, the trajectory of Chinese demand growth has not plateaued, but certainly fallen, and that, that uh, the the focuses of, of the supreme leader are, are on other things other than economic growth, uh, you know, which is different than his predecessors. Going to the kind of the, the U.S. Um, supply uh, side of things, um, <clears throat> do you see that that kind of do you see that continuing? Do you see that kind of dynamism? Because um, there's been a lot of talk about the kind of the, the shale growth profiles, the decline curves on the shales. Do you see that kind of being a kind of sustainable um, dynamic sector going forwards? I mean, nothing's sustainable forever, so it, it's all what sort of periods that, that you look at. But when I've been reading uh, a lot about this for a long time and people were going, that, that shale curve is going to decline you know, in 2011 or in 2012 or and now it's 2023, when you can't keep putting wells in forever. But to underestimate the productivity, improvement, capability in places like the Permian Basin is, has proven to be you know, a fool's game. And the, the continuing consolidation that, that is centered around the Permian but not driven there entirely um, you know, serves, serves to illustrate that. So I think the Americans can can keep doing a lot with what are now very old basins and anywhere in the world would not be doing a fraction of what they're doing. Uh, we, we kind of come back to your um, comments about demand and the developing nations needing it. Um, one of the things I think about is kind of the difference between relative growth and absolute growth um, and relative demand and, and uh, absolute demand. So yes, we may see relative increase in non-fossil fuel um, demand profile, but on an absolute basis, we still need to grow the amount of oil that we produce on an annual basis. And whether that comes from OPEC countries or uh, non-Western countries, developing nations or the US, there's still that requirement for kind of absolute supply growth to match that demand. Indeed, and that's even without taking account of depletion, which, you know, Traditional reservoirs at now three, four, five, six percent, but in your shale basins will be a lot higher on 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 an individual well basis. So, 
even just to sort of keep still, you've got to keep doing a lot. And then to go uh, and invest to sustain sustain growth, uh, again, requires a lot. And clues being some fabulous discoveries in the likes of Osho Guiana, and maybe we can talk about Venezuela later. Um, and uh, you know, th- those things can continue. And it's interesting, again, to come back, those things are driven by, in effect, the majors and Western technology and um, you know, application of great science and discipline by those companies, not not really driven by, by NSCs, which is, I think, still shows that the importance of the super majors in, in developing new demand supply. Uh, so, so, so um, the, the super majors develop new techniques for extracting uh, yeah. um, oil, oil that we're talking about. So you've got depletion to, to counter. We've got demand growth to, uh, you know, inherent demand growth. So what you're... What I think you said is that you can't predict the short term, but you're very positive about the longer term um, demand growth, and the 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 whole sector is demand driven rather than supply driven. I mean, I am particularly for gas. I mean, I, I think we probably discussed this a month ago. I see oil and gas being being slightly different. Um, I think oil could be flat to slight decline. I think gas will be flat to growth. Um, I mean, the emissions profile is different and. There are alternatives to oil's primary use in transport fuels for onshore vehicles. Um, but the alternatives to gas for many things like you know, high-intensity heat for cement making or, or in effect, its role in the, in the electricity system, which will be increasingly called upon to, to replace you know, oil, um, is, is, is not replaceable at this point. And there's no obvious technology that will do it. When we last spoke, you also spoke about... Um their consolidation in the sector kind of reflecting the views that you kind of almost kind of um providing you the evidence that you're not just you're, you're not a lone voice there are other people in in bigger companies that are thinking of, in this way um have you seen any more uh progress on that front you know have there been other uh M&A, more m a activity which is kind of confirming your hypothesis um there has i mean the, we, we spoke last time that the, the two deals Exxon and chevron had announced um uh, uh, have now been followed up in the states with, and with Occidental. I think in the last few days, announcing like a ten billion dollar transaction. Talk of Chesapeake doing something similar. Now these things are largely focused in in America, but not exclusively. I think the the Chevron deal had significant elements about Guyana, which you know we, we mentioned earlier. Um, I you know we had we hypothesized before that Shell wouldn't move on BP, and I still think that'll happen. There's still a value gap for that to happen. But from from Australia, where I sit, it's, it's been manifest now with uh, uh, revelations that our two only remaining large oil and gas companies, uh, Woodside and Santos, are in merger discussions. And uh, I think that's entirely consistent with the US thematic. It's about scale. It's about becoming a top 10 player. Um, uh, for those companies, it's focused on LNG because it shows a gassy rather than oily place. Um, I mean, some of the premium players are more focused on oil, but it's about doing more of what you do well, bigger and better. So I think that, that it's a hugely fascinating topic, uh, and, I, and I think it will continue. Uh, for juniors like us who go, well, what does that mean for us? Well, I, I think it means a lot in terms of changing the ecosystem that you need to start small and then someone buys you and then someone buys you or you can sort out or you grow or whatever. And if there's only big boys and, and nothing in between, then, then there's a bit of a gap. That that gap will be filled. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. And I think that even the Woodside and Santos deal is not the end. I mean, I think that then provides a platform for a company which has been formed through a script-based merger can then do a, like a, a deal with, so with Conoco to have a dual-listed structure that, that then become big enough to compete with the super majors. So uh, I can see it's not just a one round of dominoes. The dominoes might then spin around again. Well, let, let's come... Um, that's fascinating. Let's let's just kind of come down to that junior and that gap yeah, um, right. that you that you say that might be filled, um, because the junior space has, is is quite unloved. It's a bit like the the um, the, the metal space, mm-hmm. the hard rock space. Um, there's been a lack of investment. There's been a lack of um, price action. Lack of available capital. Particularly, it's the lack of equity capital, which is reducing the kind of the work um, the work programs that juniors have been able to do. Um, so how do you see that changing? Do you think it's just a trickle-down effect that people are going to wake up to it? Or you know, um, um, how might this play out? Um, I, I think that one consequence of the big mergers, and if I take the, the Woodside Santos one as an example, is that it will inevitably lead to spin-outs of you know, what for them are are not sort of tier one and tier two or material assets. So... Uh, what I call it is a South 32-ization uh, that will occur. And this was when BHP spun out its lower-tier assets into South 32 as a separate listed vehicle. That then became liberated to go and chase middle-tier things. Um, and I, I would see that absolutely happening here in, in Australia and elsewhere around the world. Those things will be listed or will be held private and that they will then fill up the gap. You know, ecosystems, uh, you know, have, you know, gaps get filled. That, that's what happens. I think also private equity, who you know cares less about ESG restrictions on these things, will see where there's money to be made, then money will flow. Um, so I think it doesn't necessarily happen tomorrow, and the sector is suffering some of the the headwinds that you've described. But uh, when when something can't go on forever, it won't. I think that's that's a quote from I think Nixon's Treasury Secretary, whose name I I I, I recall, but this is the only thing he's known for, and it's a great quote. Um, and so I, I, I think there's, there's lots of things that will happen, not necessarily next week, but certainly in the next few years, and that will fill up that space, provide opportunities for consolidation, for farmings, for capital to flow down, et cetera. And of course, that can happen the other way. Some, some juniors um, you know, will be successful in consolidating, taking a Pac-Man approach and really swallowing up peers and then, and then becoming bigger and bigger and then attracting different tiers of capital different forms of capital and, and then then again then filling that mid-tier sector one of the things that i kind of look for is you know who's going to be the buyers who's going to be the people um buying the shares of the juniors and uh and investing and i find it really weird because i live in an echo chamber which i think is um full of kind of right thinking people because that's my mm. echo chamber and it, there's a kind of an acceptance of the requirements for primary energy and the importance of oil and gas and the the importance of kind of basic raw materials such as um, you know copper and tin and coal and all these key things which drive our society and i'm flabbergasted whenever i switch on the mainstream media and i still see people um fighting against it you know whether that's leonardo dicaprio saying let's close down the copper mine of panama you know i think wow do they still think like that i think that just comes back to that you know misunderstanding the role of supply versus demand and wanting to be a hero and and you know be seen to be doing the right thing, but in in the end of the day, money flows where it will get returns. And um, 
you know, if, I, if I take the example of, of Berkshire Hathaway, which has been enormously successful, but also I think generally seen as an ethical company. And it sort of came to mind because Charlie Munger died recently. But I mean, Berkshire is now a big shareholder in, in Occidental, um, it's, you know, who, who is a consolidating player. And you know, who knows what they'll do next. But I mean, they've made money in and out of oil and gas many times over the years because I see it as being fundamental to to economies that grow and, and make people wealthier um, and, and can, can do so in, in ethical fashions. So that that's not a fashion-driven entity. That that one that, that's you know, been based on fundamentals for, for, for longer than I've been alive. Let, let's go to Guyana. Let's go to um, Venezuela and Esquecibo and uh, the discoveries uh, offshore Guyana. Um, what's, your, what's your take on that situation? Uh, I mean, it's clearly desperation by, by a dictator to go and distract from his appalling mismanagement of, of the economy. I mean, it's bizarre that Venezuela, which has got apparently the world's largest reserves, I don't know who certifies them, but um, apparently one reads they've got a lot of reserves that uh, that they need more oil to be richer. They can't be rich from their own reserves. They want someone else's. But if I look at it, you now Guyana's reserves are offshore uh, in deep water. They need the likes of Exxon to develop and produce them. And it, even, even if Venezuela invaded, they couldn't produce them. They don't have the skills to. So it's just utter folly and distraction by a dictator that's impoverished, you know, most of his, the people in, in his country. So and I, I don't see it happening. It's just arm waving. But even if it did happen, they don't get the offshore anyway. So, you know, big deal. You've got to get a bit more jungle. Well, you, you've got, you know, billions of barrels of reserves you haven't developed anyway. Go for that. Um, I've just been in South America and uh, the, the view there is that this is absolutely, as you described, a bit of political posturing. Um, you know, when a political uh, party is in trouble and a leader wants to whip up uh, popular support, uh, a war is a good way or threatening a war uh, is a good way to get people behind you. I mean, um, Margaret Thatcher did it um, in the UK and uh, Putin's done it. Um, and it seems as if Maduro is exactly the same. And um, <clears throat> apparently there are only two ways in. Um, one is... Uh, over the bri- uh, over the beach and kind of over the water, and the other is through Brazil. That's where the roads are. <laughs> um, and so the Brazilian have sent up a kind of a detachment of um, uh, its army up to just to stop anybody coming in through Brazil. The Guinean army is apparently only three thousand strong, and it's more like a kind of a reserve for the for the police. But I think the the, the critical relationship uh, appears to be with the states who've who've apparently just. Released some of the punitive sanctions on Venezuela in terms of oil trading and kind of basic commodity flows and and, fi- and financial flows. Um, so as you, I, I think I'm just uh, supporting uh, your comments that this is a purely political gesture and a, a bit of posturing. I, I think so, and, and am I just maybe it's politically controversial? I think Margaret Thatcher was responding to a dictator doing that rather than initiating it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, perhaps it, it came at a good time for her because. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the party wasn't doing particularly well uh, at home. It, it has affected the share prices of, of a bunch of um, Guyanan companies. I've I just seen it on the gold side. You know, some of the explorers there have um, seen their share prices come off. So it, even though it's posturing, uh, it still doesn't help yeah. uh, um, things in general. Tell us to do stupid things. We, we're clear it's, a, it's a strong lesson from history. Here we are. We've got COP28, which is... Um, uh, sailing by uh a lot of hot air possibly probably 
And as we go to the end of the year, it's it, 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 it is is the kind of the short term driver. Let's look at what happens in the Chinese uh, demand. Is that kind of the most important thing in the short term to take us into twenty twenty four? Yeah, it feels like it is. And and I'll, I'll just go back through the COP twenty eight. Well, something I think that was relevant and interesting was commitments to reduce methane emissions, which uh, most of us know are more. Uh, damaging in the short term to to the greenhouse effect than than carbon dioxide and significant pledges on that front. And I think what that demonstrates is that you you affect change by building brick by brick rather than making sweeping declarations that are hard to achieve. And so I, when I've seen the the Western oil and gas companies in particular are making and continue to make significant efforts to reduce methane emissions and. Uh, not only is it good for the environment, but it's good for their pocket because that's a product that they can then sell. So, and I think that the the developing nations have not been as good at reducing methane emissions, and really, it's a function of governance. You know, methane emissions are worse than Turkmenistan, not not in America. But as Americans, for instance, develop techniques that, um, for instance, on valves or, or pumps or whatever, then those go global. So you, you have that sort of genuine technology spill through, spill around, not by edict, just by you know, economics and capitalism. So I think that methane initiative is important and shows that you know, there is progress being made, but it's not being progressed by arm waving and, and, and posturing. It's by, by incremental change. And changing energy systems has to be incremental, and all history shows that. You, you just can't, you can't do things in, in years or even decades. Well, I mean, to go back a- to... So, so I'm just going to say that um, another thing that came out of COP was the um, the, the the nuclear word, mm-hmm. which didn't feature at all in previous uh, COPs, but actually has been quite prevalent in this COP. And I think uh, uh, over 22 countries have signed up to tripling their nuclear demand. Again, it's, it's possibly uh, a degree of politics and uh, statement rather than action, mm-hmm. um, but at least it's in the conversation now. I mean, you're exactly right. And again, it's that incrementalism. I mean, it's, uh, I think it was Obama who you know, said back in the day when people were less extreme that you know, it's an all of the above solutions required. It's not, it's not picking winners. Um, and again, I come back to one of my hobby horses, CCS. I mean, our um, environment minister, Mr. O, recently saying it's not something we want to do. It's a backstop. It's like a goalie. You know, it's, if the ball comes through, you save it. But it, it's not. It's absolutely required in, in every scenario you can possibly posit. Um, and so again, that's sort of like picking winners and that, that, that's got short-term political favorism within your own echo chambers. So, yeah, I, I think the nuclear one is is important. Is it going to save it by itself? No, but it's going to be a part of a whole suite of things which will will, will affect beneficial change. Uh, Neil, thank you very much for that. Always good to talk to you. Um, next time, I'd like to uh, dig a little bit more into uh, CCS and understand a bit more about the the the, the mechanics and the pricing of that. Um, but perhaps we can pick that up uh, early in 2024. Uh, absolutely, Merlin. Uh, great to talk to you. Uh, happy Christmas to you and, and any viewers uh, who uh, follow the seasonal tradition. Thank you.